In this series, lowimpact.org talks with people working to build a mutually owned, democratic, decentralised economy that builds community and doesn't destroy nature. We want to increase collaboration to bring about system change. Find links to the sites mentioned in the videos in the description below. Join the conversation by liking, commenting and subscribing to our channel. Today I'm talking with Julia Steinberger, Professor of Ecological Economics at the University of Leeds. And tell me if this is right, Julia, a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is that right? Yes, I'm one of the lead authors, so one of many. And I don't speak on behalf of the IPCC because nobody does, the reports do. I read a survey, I read about a survey in the US recently. I think it was 40 something percent of under 24s considered themselves anti-capitalist in the yep. States, in the US. Exactly. That was incredible. Yeah, no, well, that's what I'm saying. So Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialists of America, they're, and uh, the Sunrise Movement. So all of these things are sort of, the youth is going absolutely in a completely different direction from, uh, from where they're, from, from older people. Mm. And, uh, and I think that that's very heartening, but I think that it's also a reflection of how much hardship they've experienced. So it's a generation that has no assets, no equity. You know, they're basically born into debt and the only way that they can do anything is with more debt. I mean, they can, mm. they can see that picture. They, I think that exploitation is not an abstract concept to them somehow. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I theoretically feel exploited. No, you, you kind of know with all your life, you're, you're working to benefit something that you never get to see. Yeah. That's not Here's something a bit more contentious. Um, you criticized... Um, those people who criticize lockdown because of the damage it's causing to the economy. You said that well-being is more important than the economy. Agreed, definitely agreed. But it's small businesses that are being destroyed. Meanwhile, yeah. Amazon is hoovering up absolutely everything. And, um, and Sweden hasn't had a lockdown, but I don't think its figures are that much worse than other places. And I recently read that their deaths per million are lower than ours. And... Um, yeah. Couldn't we, couldn't we yeah. just have got vulnerable people to self-isolate rather than absolutely everybody and, and, and closing down all the small businesses? So Sweden has a, has a much better performance than the UK because the UK is super bad. Yeah. The UK is super terrible. So yeah. a lot of countries within Europe have done a lot better than Sweden. Um, in fact, I've been comparing Sweden and Switzerland because we have friends in Sweden, my family is in Switzerland. Um, and Switzerland did a lot better, but Switzerland has reopened it. So that's, this here's the thing that's maddening to me. Lockdown saves lives. If you lost, started lockdown early, you got over with the whole thing in a couple of months. It didn't take four months, five months of lockdown to get anywhere. You know, so that's the other thing is that a government that, respond, that responded in a, time, in a timely fashion is able to also protect that part of the economy that much more. Um, in terms of small businesses suffering, this is, it's true. So what's happening in terms of the lockdown and in terms of coronavirus is real economic hardship and misery for tons of people. And Jeff Bezos is getting rich as yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. People are doing lots of online shopping and he's horrible. And Amazon is horrible and it has a horrible climate and human rights and everything you want record. Uh, and, you know, including exposing its own um, warehouse workers to coronavirus and unsafe working conditions, right? So, so it's really, it's really, that part of what's been happening in the economy is, is devastating, but it's not neutral. It didn't just happen. God did not make it happen that way. 
the government made it happen that way, mm. right? So none of these things were sort of, the, 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 the economy, that's one of the most important things to understand about it, does not have natural laws. It, it is man-made or human-made. And in this case, it is Boris Johnson made. And so he decided to make choices that did not protect small businesses, that exposed the UK to a long and devastating lockdown because he allowed the disease to progress so far before he took mm. it seriously. Mm. And then he did not protect the small businesses as he should have. And people were saying, you need to do this, you need to cancel rent. You know, just make a rent amnesty for the duration for everybody. Mortgage amnesty, rent amnesty, so that people don't have to pay rent on their shops. That's a basic thing that we can do that. You know, so there are, there are all these little patchwork things of, 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 of tiny little protections here and there, lots of paperwork, and in the end, um, a lot of people are suffering. Mm -hmm. That's very bad. A tiny little steer away from GDP. Um, it's not often I get to talk to someone so, so qualified to answer sort of scientific questions like this. Could the, do you think that the current global economy could run entirely on renewables? Or would it have to shrink significantly before it could? The current global economy could. So the, the, there's two questions in there. Because do you mean the current level of renewable energy or a sort of potential future level of renewable Potent, energy? Potential future level of renewable energy. I think the answer is still no. The economy is too big? I think the economy currently is too big. And also too much of it is tied up in things that sort of inherently use up lots of fossil fuels and resources, including we can't just decouple fossil fuel use from material use resource use. So, and renewable energy itself takes uh, materials to use. So one of the things when you're talking about renewable energy, you're talking about part of the economy being oriented differently uh, so that those renewable technologies can happen. Um, so my opinion, uh, I haven't modeled it, is that it's just an educated guess, let's call it that, um, is that the current economy cannot run on renewable energy. However, a perfectly good economy, which prioritizes human well-being and is equitable. So that's one of the, but that's a, that's a paper that we've writ, written that's going to come out like in a couple of months that we did model. So that I'm, now I'm speaking confidently. All right. It is possible to, uh, within sort of the generating, renewable generating capacity, to supply everybody with decent living standards in terms of decent living, you know, everybody. I'm not talking like just a few people here and there, just a tiny minority or 10% or 20% of the global population. I'm talking 100% of the global population have decent living standards, um, um, thermal comfort, you know, 20 degrees year round, um, uh, access to transport networks, access to, access to telecommunications, all of that stuff, decent food, all that stuff, at uh, levels of energy that are compatible with renewable production. But, in future scenarios, but the counterpart to that is it does not involve overconsumption. And we're talking about very efficient delivery of energy services. And I think that people really, that's one of the things that's hard to get across, I don't know why, is that it's as important or even more important to invest in sufficiency. So in this idea, that we need technology to allow people to live well at low resource use. And the way you do that is through technology. The way you do that is through efficient technologies like insulation, like ways of cooking that are much more efficient, like induction stoves, ways of lighting that are much more efficient, like LED lights, 
So you can do this via technology. That is the technology we really need to be investing in. So we have, we have to have a two-pronged approach, a three-pronged approach, renewable generation, efficient consumption, and sufficient levels, meaning no overconsumption. Mm. That's what we can. So all three, with all three of those, we can totally do it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see that paper when it comes out, by the way. You can see it. I can send it to you. I can send you a preview. I'd love, to, cool. I'd love to see it. Thank you. And, and what yeah. about nuclear? I know a lot of environmentalists are coming out in favor of nuclear now because it's not fossil fuels. And I guess my problem with it, apart from the hazardous waste and the zillions of tons of concrete, is that it has to be corporate. It can't be owned by communities. So it ends up sucking wealth away from communities and concentrating it. And concentrated wealth prevents democracy. Um, and plus having the control of our energy supply in the hands of those people is a bad idea, I think. What, what do you think about nuclear? Um, I guess I have mixed feelings about nuclear. So I think nuclear has a larger claim to being sort of a bridge fuel than natural gas does. So when natural gas was counted as a bridge fuel, it's like, what? so where's the end of the bridge? And the gas companies are like, oh, didn't we say that? We really didn't mean it. We want to keep you know, going forever. Um, so, so I think that nuclear is currently a low carbon supply of energy um, that exists in a lot of parts of the world. I'm not saying, I personally do not believe that we should be building massive new nuclear generation. I think that we should be keeping the stuff that can be kept going safely going until we have built up, you know, offshore wind and et cetera capacity and we've reduced demand levels. Mm -hmm. So I think that those are the things that, that, that in that sense, nuclear capacity should, should allow us to get there while, while emitting uh, less fossil fuels. I think that's something that happened in Germany where, for instance, Germany, uh, turned away from nuclear after Fukushima, which is understandable, it's very scary, but they, you know, they barrel straight into coal and they're using yeah. a lot of coal. Yeah. And that's a, that's a disaster as well. And in fact, uh, fun, fun fact, coal power generation is responsible for more everyday radioactive radioactivity, at least in the US, because the coal um, is a dirty fuel and has lots of radioactive elements in it. Oh my God. Naturally, okay. so it's just, just spewing that stuff out the stacks, and that stuff lands all over the place. So you know, coal was responsible for the for mercury, um, huge amounts of mercury pollution, right? Uh, so mercury mercury pollution comes from coal mm. in the U.S. and wow. and 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 far more background radiation uh, people are getting from coal fired power plants than they are from nuclear power plants. So I think. Um, I'm not sure about, I don't, I don't want to talk about what's happening in Europe because I have not looked at the composition of coal in Europe, but it might be the same. Coal is just dirty. Mm, it's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of blood lying around that got fossilized at some point. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so in, in a sustainable future, um, and there's no other kind of future, um, is there a place for the aviation industry? I mean, you know, bearing in mind that if Westerners can fly on holiday, then soon 10 billion people will be aspiring to fly on holiday. And, yeah. and there's, there's no way to fly people around the world without burning fossil fuel. Correct. So I am very strongly anti-aviation. I no longer take planes. I have my family in the U.S. I no longer go to see them. Uh, I do not believe that it is sustainable to have aviation <laughs> because there is no such thing as a low-carbon flight on the horizon. And they lie about it and they say, I mean, we've had that experience in Leeds where they, uh, Leeds Bradford Airport wanted to expand yeah. and they went around telling city councillors, uh, oh, you know, electric air, we're, we're going to be so low carbon, you, you know, it's like you're, you're lying to our politicians more than telling us this stuff with a big grin like it's true. Yeah. It's not yeah. true. 
you know, and the, uh, the climate, the Committee on Climate Change said it wasn't true in their scenarios. They looked into it. They're like, no, this technology is not on the horizon. It's more here. So I think we need to move away from planes. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I, just, uh, I hear a lot. Oh, I, I only fly once a year. Um, as if that's okay. And it's like 10 billion people flying once a year is not okay. It's, it's not, it's not okay, but it's, it's also true that there are, um, there are lots of, uh, people who fly a lot more than that. So there, th so flying is, so that's another study we did this year that came out in nature energy, where we looked at on the inequality of different types of energy use across the world and within countries. And flying is mega unequal. So it really skewed. Yeah. There's some people who fly all the time. Mm -hmm. There's some people who fly once a year. There's some people who fly once every two years. And there's some people, a lot of people, who fly never, including mm -hmm. in the UK, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so including in the industrial world. Well, and, 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 but including the industrial world, not just by choice, just because they don't have the money or they mm -hmm. do other stuff. So I think that flying is really, is very, very unequal. And, um, cutting down on flying is also one of the no-brainers because it's, you're actually hurting in the sense of changing the consumption. I don't believe that changing consumption patterns is necessarily a bad thing, mm. uh, but you're changing the consumption patterns of a very small minority of people who fly a lot. Mm. It's basically what you're looking at. And mm. academics are doing that, and you know what? Academics can learn how to use video conferencing software. Yeah, we that, that, that may okay. be one good thing. That may be one good thing that comes out of COVID. It's like people have learned how to, to use, um, Video conference. Yeah. Yep. So, talking about academics, how can academics influence policymakers when the corporate world has so much sway and the corporate world sure as hell don't want anyone to question economic growth? That's a good question. I think that some politicians are aware of this. So, in terms of policymakers, some policymakers would very much like to be on the side of the majority rather than uh, corporate business, you know, the, the corporate side. So there are some people who inherently have different goals in life, and then they will be looking for evidence, looking for academics who can help them out. Um, my view is that it's going to take uh, popular movements. So that's one of the things that I'm thinking is that I, I'm, a, I'm an academic who I can't talk politely and in diplomatic ways. I am trained as a physicist. So I'm very blunt. So I... I'm the wrong person to ask about this, but what I've decided to do is go and talk to people yeah. because I think it's going to take people power. I think it's going to take a fight. And I think that there's this notion of losing social license, which is very important. I think we need to get, um, we need popular power and political power to take away social license to operate from these companies. These companies will not become unprofitable or whatever, just because the market says so we will stop them by, by sheer force of power from operating when we are strong enough. And that's how we know. That's how we'll That's how we'll I'm sorry? I really hope so. Um, do you know about mutual credit? Um, tell me. We're, um, well, there is a, there's, a, there's a group of us, we're starting something called mutual credit clubs. It's a way of trading without money. And therefore doesn't require banks mm -hmm. doesn't require interest you trade on account so you you buy yeah. you buy your account goes down you, you sell your account goes up um, and that's it 
that that's it in its simplest form. That's it. Obviously, you need lots of sort of tech and and governance and membership agreements and regulations, but that's basically it. So we're building these clubs and we're talking to accountants, we're talking to local authorities, we're talking to social enterprise networks, we're talking to business networks uh, to, to set up these clubs. And the really interesting thing is that these clubs will be able to intertrade. So um, a business in a particular community, if it can't find what it needs from the businesses in its community, can trade with a business in another club in another community. And so that would, if it grows, if it gets traction and starts to grow, it can go, it can go global. Uh, so that's that's what we're working on at the moment. I'll send you I'll send I'll send you some information. Yeah, that's very good. Um, but um, yeah, it it seems to me that there's a there's an ecological shitstorm on the way, and I just how likely do you think that is there'll there'll be some sort of collapse, and what might that look like? I th so um, I think the notion of one single collapse is um, I think it's a bit too much like the movies. Um, so if you think about collapse, Puerto Rico had a collapse. New Orleans had a collapse. And I'm just talking about places in America. Um, Paradise, California, pretty sure collapsed. Um, and places in Bangladesh right now, in Mozambique, uh, you know, uh, after, uh, after the hurricanes there last, last summer. Um, some parts of Australia have collapsed, I would guess. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to think through the, 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 these places. So we have uh, places that have been hit by mega typhoons in the Philippines are, you know, probably facing collapse places that have suffered horrific drought in India. So I think that collapse is not one thing. So some places, some ecosystems, some communities have already collapsed, have already yeah. been dispersed. I mean, you think of after the storm. I mean, there was just, there was just nothing. There was no help. There was nothing. Um, and so I also think that we have the wrong idea of what it looks like when, when collapse happens, because when it happens at that level, we don't hear the voices of the people, you know, either the people succeed in leaving and rejoining other communities or their conditions become completely miserable and you just don't, you don't hear from them. Mm -hmm. And Marianne Ayes Hegler, who's a climate journalist and writer, and one of the things she says is um, she's always looking for from first, first person testimony from climate events happening around the world mm -hmm. and how rare that is for a journalist to be able to make it there. Um, to be able to talk to those people, to get first-person accounts. So in terms of collapse, collapse is already happening. Yeah. Driven, driven by, by environmental degradation. In terms of mega events, I think, um, I think things are going to get worse, but I think we're also learning to struggle against them. So I'm um, trying to think about social tipping points. I'm trying to think about how We've had this idea that the transition to sustainability would be smooth. This idea of transition is a smooth one, right? Where we go smoothly in one direction for the good stuff and smoothly in one direction for the bad stuff. And I think that um, the tr this, this will not be a transition, it will be a transformation. Again, it will be a transformation that happens some places first, other places later, and it will be sudden. It will be, you know, finally we managed to get to that point where this industry does not, does no longer have traction 
no longer get subsidies, we can throw cars out of our cities, you know, this is going to happen some places first, then other places, then everywhere very fast. So the good stuff is going to happen suddenly. The bad stuff is going to happen suddenly, and it's going to happen in different ways across across the world. Yeah. I would say that the thing that worries me the most in all of this is probably the rise of fascism and anti-democracy. Mm. So for all the people who always say, oh, you're Stalinist, you're anti-democratic, you're totalitarian socialist of some uh, very specific description, the totalitarian governments are fossil fueled. Mm. They are very much tied in with existing industrial um, powerhouses of you know fossil fuel industries, automotive industries, and so on. So you know Trump is making himself into Mr. Coal, right? Mm. Uh, Bolsonaro is you know Mr. Destroy the Amazon. So they, they um, and you know and in China and around the world, these the people who who are taking you know Modi in in India, right? Uh, the people who are doing this totalit these totalitarian governments, they are tied to those industries. And so overcoming that, overcoming the kind of um, kind of force that China has put against people in Hong Kong, that Trump is you know, beating down on people in Portland uh, in terms of having unmarked vehicles come take people away off the streets, you know, shooting at mothers, whatever. So uh, that I think is very scary because we need people power to be able to take over. And the totalitarian, the totalitarian governments stand against that in a very violent, brutal way. And that makes the situation a lot more desperate, I think. So I think really standing against totalitarianism is very important as part of the climate and environmental struggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I look at the, the figures on biodiversity loss and climate change, it's, it seems to be accelerating and inexorable. And it's just, I mean, I, I, I do remain optimistic. It's like, yeah, I'm still, I'm still up for this fight, but I'm not convinced that we're going to win it. And I'm, I, I, do you think human extinction is a possibility? Yes. You think, uh, I think it's a possibility in the sense that you know, but when you think about the probability spectrum, it would almost be foolish to rule it out. Mm. I'm not saying it's probable. Uh, humans are pretty resilient. There's a gazillion of us right now, give or take. And so, um, you know, it's in some ways, in some ways, it's un, it's possible because you can think of a pandemic. You can think of you know, virus gets good enough, and it could definitely do a lot of damage. But in terms of wiping us out completely, it's probably going to take a bunch of different unlucky events. I would say it's not one event that's going to wipe people out. Yeah. Um, it's just too many of us and we're just too clever. Uh, but in terms of eliminating what we call human civilization right now, mm -hmm. which is, is, I would characterize it very simply as the ability to feed um, billions of people with stable agriculture. Mm -hmm. I think that that is under probable threat. And if we continue on our current course, it's under certain threat. Mm -hmm. And that's not a surprise. I mean, that's, that's with this idea of we're going through the geological eras as we go forward into climate change. Yeah. There is no guarantee that you can grow corn, wheat, rice, and other staple crops in those other geological eras, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess if we, if, we, uh, if we get knocked back to something resembling the Stone Age, it's not going to be the same kind of Stone Age as the first time around. It'll have much less biodiversity, 
no easily available resources, much higher temperatures, much more desert, much less soil, much lower human sperm count. It would be a different kind of stone age. It would be much more difficult well, I, to much more difficult to develop from. I don't. I don't think that that's. I don't think that anything like that can be said, um, because uh, I mean, it's not like it's not like humans developed um, in. It's not like the past few hundred thousand years have been particularly easy for humans to deal with as a species. I mean, if you're talking about a species and going back to the Stone Age, I mean, ice ages suck. Like, you might not like climate change, you might not like global warming, but ice ages are terrible. Yeah. They are not fun. There is no food. You're competing with everybody else for like the food there is. Um, and what ice ages have almost wiped us out in the past. So in the past, you know, uh, so it's estimated that in the second to last ice age, I think that's, I think they got the math correct. Not the last one, the previous one, uh, humans almost got wiped out completely. That it was down to a very, very small population. Um, so I... I don't know that we can say anything like that. I think that the, I think that we can say that right now we have an avoidable disaster and that disaster will always be avoidable to the extent that we can always stop it from getting worse. There are some parts we cannot avoid any longer. So some of the disasters are happening. Some of the species extinction and ecosystem loss are already basically locked in. So it's not, it's not, for me, it's really not binary. You can't think about it in a binary way, but you can think about, you can always think about what there is to save and you can always, every bit of stability is going to save lives. Every bit of emissions we don't emit will save lives. That's for sure. Um, I'll just finish with one thing if that's okay. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of people's solutions rely to a certain extent on the state um, and I think the problem with that for me is that the state, I don't see it as somehow a counterbalance to corporate and financial power. And I, th I think both right-wing libertarians and most of the left think that it is. And the right want to shrink the state and the left want to grow the state for that reason. I think we have a, a state-corporate alliance now. And that if the state shrinks, the corporate and financial sectors will inevitably shrink with it. I mean, the state props up the corporate sector in lots of ways. It, it, uh, it will take the tax from a small independent coffee shop and will not collect the tax from Starbucks. It will give contracts to the corporate sector. It will bail them out if they fail. It will, it will completely favor and gives banks a, a monopoly on, on, on the money supply. Um, and so I don't believe in economies of scale. I don't think they're real without the state. I think small holdings are much more productive than industrial agriculture, but only the latter gets government subsidies. And in any, in any way, look who's winning the elections. I, I, I think it's hopeless to, to, to look for the, to the state for solutions. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, I mean, if it happens, great, but I really, really can't see it. And, it, and uh, you know, if anyone gets close, who will actually transfer power from corporations to communities like Corbyn, they get absolutely slaughtered in the corporate press and don't stand any chance of being elected. Um, I think the solution has to come from us, from ordinary people in communities. I think that for me, I think the state will be more of a hindrance than a help. And I, I think maybe you don't feel the same way. Maybe you think the state can help us. I don't, I don't think the state is one thing or another. I think the state is whoever, has enough power to make it 
in their image. And if you have, if communities are organizing and doing these things and at, this, at, at the scale that you want to see it happen, then we'll definitely have enough power and influence to also take over state functions and get elected and influence state funding in very different ways. So I, so I think that it's, a, I think that right now we are in a period, you know, we've had decades since 1980 of right-wing ascendancy. Mm. And uh, this idea of, oh, the, the, you know, the right wing want to shrink the state so that it can, you know, not interfere with the market anymore. That's, that's just a slogan, right? What they really want is they want what you just described, which is a state which is complicit, yeah. which is captured by corporate interests. And that's yep. what they've created. Um, and yes, we do need to take power. We do need to take power back from that or take power differently. But I don't think that I don't think that the state is either, I, I agree, the state is not the solution, the state is not rational, the state is not um, a benevolent dictator or, or, or anything to look to in that sense, but I do think that the state is what we can make of it. I mean, I was kept alive with, by the NHS multiple times. I guess you have too. That's a state institution that was created by the state. You know, we have, we have counterexamples of what the state can do differently when power shifts. And yes, you're right that Corbyn was an attempt. I mean, I would have been very happy to see him prime minister. Um, we see how difficult that is. And the same time, we also see the demographics. The young voted left. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We see the that, the that demographic wave is there. And it's there in the US, it's there in the UK. I wish it were stronger. I wish it had a majority. I mean, the UK is also first past the post is a complete disaster as well. So I really hope that proportional representation um, in this idea that labor will win a victory is ridiculous. You look at the math and first past the post, it is not going to happen. It will only happen through coalition, through proportional representation, right? So that's one of the things I think certainly in the UK, there is no, it really makes me cringe when I hear people say, so and so will bring labor to victory. It's like you haven't looked at the rules. Yeah. I act against you. Okay, you need to yeah. change the rules of the game. Yeah. So, so I think that that's um, anyway. I think that I think that this. I wouldn't say the state is just one thing or the other thing. Is what we make of it, and we can certainly stop it. So, if the state is doing bad things, we can mobilize and stop it from doing those bad things. Mm. Uh, so we shouldn't just take it as given that we should allow it to run roughshod over all the things that we want to do. Why aren't you on TV more? I think you should be on TV more. I, you, you, listening to you makes me feel more optimistic. Oh dear, that was not my goal. That was not my goal. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Actually, I turned down the BBC to be on this. That's not, I'm only slightly kidding. They asked me to go on for a program that was not not my expertise and it was the wrong time and I'm moving house, so I couldn't go. <laughs> okay. I can. Maybe it's my fault. I'll take it as a compliment. I'll take it as a compliment anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so Julia, I'll, um, I'll send you some, some information about mutual credit and what we're up to. Yeah, I'll um, I think you'll find that really interesting. And um, yeah. I think you, you were going to send me a paper, a couple of papers, I think. That'd be, yeah. I'll, I'll, put, uh, I'll put links to various things in the description under the video and uh, uh, I didn't mean to keep you this long, but it was really, really Yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. I got talking and like this evening, so yeah, sorry. Really, really interesting. Thank you very, very much.